0: A big part of uh, what Christmas is for all of us is the nostalgia of it. Um, Christmas probably is the most nostalgic time of year for most of us. Uh, You certainly can't sing those songs uh, that we've been singing all our lives, most of us, uh, without having some memories of childhood. And I know for me it's like I remember dressing up as a wise man or something and being a part of a a program. And I flash back to my kids dressed up. Uh, I remember those silly little chicken heads and donkey heads and things our boys wore in those pageants, you know, and, and all of that stuff. So it's a really nostalgic time of year for all of us. I think one thing that's important for us to remember, and it's hard for us to think this way, is that for the earliest, earliest people who were looking for the Messiah, they had no Christmas. It was just like, it was a thing that we hope a Messiah will come, we've been prophesied, it's going to happen, but when will it, to imagine life with no Christmas is just totally, I don't know, we we can't even comprehend that. It's, It's just the, you know, the decorations come out, what? You've been seeing them in stores since September, October, you know, and... Uh, retail stores have been gearing up for Christmas selling and you've been thinking about planning events with family and if you're like me, you had lights on the house about a month ago and you're, re- you're ready to go. I don't know, it's just a big part of our lives is built around this. Even the gospel writers, when they're writing about Christmas, take different tracks on this. When they're telling the story of Jesus, the four primary ways we know about Jesus it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're four very different people. They're not all the same age. I'm going to talk a little bit about that this morning. And so they have a different take on telling the beginning of the story of Jesus. In the coming weeks, we'll get to what you want to really talk about. in you're going to Wise Men and Shepherds and, and Bethlehem. It's coming uh, next Sunday and, and then the uh, candlelight service. But it's important to talk about John, as Jeremy did last week and to talk about Mark, as I'm going to this morning, because these four tell us this, this more complete, comprehensive story of how Jesus came in, into the world. I was shocked uh, when I saw, uh, just about a week or two ago, a headline in the Christian Post based on the latest survey that came out of Lifeway Research Group, Christian Research Group, and the Christian Post headline said these words, Did Jesus exist before Christmas? The subheadline and what's in the body of this article, when I began to read it, said this, The latest poll says that less than half of all Americans believe that Jesus existed before Bethlehem. The same poll says that only 63% of regular church attenders believe that Jesus existed before Bethlehem. Now that's shocking that most, half Americans, more than half Americans, and a big chunk of churchgoers believe that Jesus came into existence at Bethlehem, what they're really saying is, we believe he's a man, but not God. We believe he's a good person who lived and whatever and did good things, but to think of his pre existence of Bethlehem is not something that we've been taught. And I will lay that pole squarely at the feet of pastors across America who are not teaching their people about the Old Testament prophecies. And why it's so important that we talk about John and Mark a little bit to link the story from the old to the new. Pastor Jeremy, I thought, did an amazing job, especially last week. If you could listen to the first 15 minutes of that sermon where he gave an overview of the Gospels and wove together why you have four different viewpoints and how that builds a comprehensive story and how God used these four men to tell a story about Jesus Christ and, and how, God, how God engineered this thing. It was just It's an outstanding narrative that Jeremy gave last week. I'd encourage everyone to, to, to listen to that. And then his sermon was really about the Gospel of John, how John, uh, John's take on Jesus coming into the world, this Jesus' human best friend, and uh, you know, his best friend essentially, if you want to say, is eulogizing and telling the story of Jesus What John really wanted you to know is this is the Son of God. When John, I think you you guys are studying John here on Wednesday nights in Miss Leah's class, the ending of the book of John, the last words in the book of John, John gets right to it. John says, now listen, I wrote all of this down, but the world could not contain the books that could be written about what Jesus did. But I have written these that you may know that he is the Son of God. that's john's really driving home i've written this whole book this whole story about jesus and here's why i've written it because i don't want you to miss the point yes a baby was born but he is the son of of god he has always existed bethlehem is only his human manifestation to earth but he is here from the beginning with the father at the creation all through the old testament but now in these last days the writer of hebrews says god has spoken to us by his son jesus christ now that's john and john really wants to, to to deliver that and it's important to understand that Jesus isn't just a man, he's a man, but he's not just merely a man, not only a man, he is God. Now, Mark tells the same story, but Mark tells the story of Jesus from a very different perspective. In other words, I am not you, you are not me. Uh, Mark is not John, Mark is Mark. Uh, his real name is John Mark, and we just shorten it to say Mark, but that's, they called him John Mark. And again, I know it's a little confusing. There are several Johns in the New Testament. John the Baptist, John Mark, and the, the Apostle John. There's a whole gaggle of Marys. It's a very common name in Israel. Uh, and so it's very confusing to know which one we're, we're talking about. And the Bible tries to pause and be Mary, the mother of Jesus. Or, you know, it'll, it'll help delineate things like that for us. Mark, uh, John Mark... He lived in one of the most exciting and, I would say, also one of the most dangerous times uh, in all of human history. It was a wonderful moment. I mean, you would like to be there to see Jesus, but it was also a terrifying moment to live because if you become a follower of Jesus, you've basically written your own death sentence in that era. So it's really a mixed bag of, you know, a lot of times we say, Man, I would have loved to have been there. Would you? (laughs) Would you really? (laughs) Uh, because this morning you're going to worship and you're going to go out and you're going to eat and you're going to enjoy your family and you're going to talk about Jesus openly and we're going to bow our heads in public at a restaurant in just a few minutes and invoke the name of Jesus and no one's going to even blink, no one's going to even care and every once in a while I stroll by a family on my way out of the restaurant and say hey thank you for praying, I appreciate your public, I, you know I even encourage people in, in what they're doing about little small acts that display their faith their display, their faith publicly. Some of you probably have a nativity scene set up in your front yard. I doubt very seriously if anybody's going to burn your house down over it. Praise God, they, they won't. And you'll, you'll, you may, some neighbors may even walk by and say, hey, thank you for doing that. And it may even be an opportunity to talk about Jesus for a little bit right there in the community. Now, here's what you need to know about John Mark. John Mark is a lot younger than these other guys. Now, of the apostles, we think that John who Pastor Jeremy talked about last week, was the youngest apostle. But John Mark is younger than all of them. John Mark's just a kid. John Mark was just a teenager in the youth department, if you would, of the first church, when Peter and, 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 and James and John are up leading the church. He, he's just a young person. Now, as far as we know, and the best we know, uh, John Mark was led to faith by Simon Peter, is what we think. And we think that because when Peter is talking about Mark uh, in First Peter, Peter calls, Simon Peter calls Mark my own spiritual son, very much the way that Paul talks about Timothy, my own son in the faith, uh, and then Paul will be careful to say, we know Lois and Eunice, your mother and grandmother have invested in you, but there's some real bond there between Simon Peter and John Mark. And almost all the scholars believe if he didn't lead him to faith in Christ, at least it's safe to say that Simon Peter discipled John Mark, who would have been much, much younger. A lot of people think John Mark was the hand that wrote out some of what, like in other words, if Peter wanted to dictate a letter to somebody, Mark, come here, your handwriting's great, write this down. And Mark would write for Peter. Anyway, there's, there's a very close relationship there. Uh, some kind of spiritual connection, probably disciple to disciple maker. And uh, Mark's uncle is worth talking about for a few minutes this morning. Mark's uncle, you'll know as soon as I mention his name, he was the happiest, most gracious, most gentle, kind guy in the, in the first New Testament church in Jerusalem. He was so beloved by everybody that he, nobody ever calls him by his name. His proper name would be Joseph Joseph shortened, familiar, Joseph, but you won't know him still until I tell you his name's Barnabas. And when I say Barnabas, oh yeah, you're like, I know Barnabas. Yeah, that guy. Yeah, that guy. That guy is John Mark's uncle. And uh, Barnabas is the guy who, when the book of Acts opens, and it says... And the church was so on fire about the mission and about demons being cast out, about people being saved and about people being baptized, that the people looked at their possessions and didn't count anything as their own, but instead said, where is the need? Let us be generous givers to the need. We have more than we are using. Now, I don't want to beat up on your materialism too much this morning because it's really close to your heart, I know. But I do want to say this to you. We are materialistic. We have too much. We have more than we're using. You will throw junk away that has spoiled in your refrigerator this week. Can I get a witness? You will have to go through the pantry at some point and say, expired, 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 molded, trash, jogged. Okay? You will have to go through your closet in January after you get your Christmas presents because you can't wedge one more hanger in that rack of clothes that you've got. It's bursting at the seams. Now I don't say that to berate you, I just say that to say how blessed you are and how how great it is to be God's children living in America and be uh, have a great job and have health and health care and freedom and liberty and just every once in a while fall down on your knees when you're alone or go out for a walk and look at the stars or somewhere, find a place to be with God and lift your hands to God and say, God, I have received Your bounty is maybe no other Christians on earth have ever received it. And you use it as a moment of worship. And then you say to God, now God, what can I do to give it? God, what can I do to channel? God, I have more than I can use. You've been so gracious. And God, if you'll just keep pouring it out, I want to keep pouring it out as well and be a blessing. Now, that's Barnabas. And the Bible says in the opening chapters of the book of Acts, that when the church was launched and the Spirit filled the church and the people began to, to, to share the gospel and the church began to grow when thousands are being baptized, that a certain man named Barnabas went and sold a piece of property that he wasn't using and he came and he laid the sum at the apostles' feet and said, by printers, by pigs... Feed orphans, feed widows, take care of children. Whatever is at the heart of missions, whatever is at the heart of ministry, use it for the work of the Lord. Now that's what, remember, uh, spawned a whole movement of giving in the early church. Remember that ugly scene with Ananias and Sapphira who lied about their giving? Anyway, but Barnabas was the originator of that. Barnabas was the one who came. Now it's the same Barnabas, you won't be shocked. The same Barnabas who, when Paul said, God's called me to go try to win Europe for Christ, it's the same Barnabas who the Holy Spirit worked in his heart and he said, you know what? i am evidently got a, a, a passport and the ability to travel. Paul, I want to go with you. Can you use a traveling companion? Paul had a couple of traveling companions. We know Paul and Silas made some trips. Paul and Barnabas made some trips. John Mark was on those trips. With Paul and Barnabas at times. We know that John Mark had some discouragement and some growth. And then Paul later would say, bring John Mark to me. He is so valuable to the ministry. He's matured. He's developed as a disciple. I need him on the mission field. But it was his uncle's mission heart, his uncle's willingness to go, that really impacted his, his life. His mother's name is Mary. One of the Mary's that we're talking about in the Bible. Not Mary, the mother of Jesus, totally different, but his mother's name was Mary. And uh, we know this because the home which the first church met in, when you're reading through the Gospels uh, and you're reading through the opening book of Acts, and they were in an upper room, they were in a home, they were gathered for prayer somewhere, it's Mary's home they're gathered in. Let me say it a different way. It's Mark's home they're gathered in. He's just a youth, but it's his mother's house. Maybe his uncle is probably right there with them. I'm going to read from Acts 12, 12. And when this had dawned on him, something about Simon Peter, Peter went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who is also called Mark, where many people had gathered and they were praying. It's where the church met and assembled for prayer, at least on some occasions we know, at the home of Mary and John Mark and Simon Peter being there with them leading, leading the meetings. So I want to say it this way, and this is something the Cornerstone family will get. When you think about John Mark or Barnabas or Mary, about the people you're reading about in the New Testament, one thing you'll see is that John Mark's family, Barnabas's family, Mary's family, however you want to say it, they were all in as a family for the mission of Christ. Now I find this so encouraging and so beautiful, and I just want to challenge you with this. And if you don't hear whatever else I have to say, please hear this this morning. We need families that are all in for Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes there will be a dad who's in for Jesus and the rest of the family doesn't care. More likely in America, we have a woman who's all in for Jesus and a husband doesn't care. Sometimes and many times in our ministries, we've had youths who were all in for Jesus But mom and dad didn't care. Uh, All kinds of combinations we deal with. But I want to tell you when you get the sweet spot is when you get a mom and dad who love Jesus Christ with all their hearts and all their minds and all their soul filled with the Spirit and they have children who are coming to faith and they are investing in their children and the children become all in for Jesus Christ. And if you want the, 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 the holy trifecta, it's when the grandparents are all in for Jesus Christ. Now, if you've got that family, you have something else to fall on your face and praise about this week and worship God over when your whole family can worship together, when your whole family is on the mission together. And listen, what Christianity in Fort Worth needs is to get back to multi-generational Christianity. We need to get back to, see, here's what we did. Gosh, this is in my notes, and I'm just going to scrap part of the sermon. And be watching in the sound booth. Here's what Christianity did in America. Grandma and Grandpa got old and crotchety and wanted what they wanted. And they wanted to sing their hymns worse than they wanted to worship with their grandchildren. And because the they refused to change their music style, Grandma and Grandpa, they no longer worship with their grandkids who have a completely different music style. And because the parents insisted on a certain dress code in worship, and their grandkids don't have that dress code in worship, because America has totally changed in 50 years, now we're ripping families apart and saying, well, I'll go worship at my church, and I'll go worship at my church, and and now I... We did something terrible. And we did it because we didn't love our own husbands, wives, children, grandparents, grandchildren enough to say I'm willing to make some changes in my tastes in order to have family worship together. And I can promise you when it's all said and done and you look back on your life not any of those individual preferences are going to be worth having sacrificed your family worship for. Keep it together if you can. Kids give a little... Parents give a little. Grandparents give a little. Find the common sweet spot if you can. But by all means, try to keep your family in the mission, in the church, in the work of the Lord together. That's what's being modeled in the New Testament. Try to keep it together. And it's not easy. That's a a real, real challenge. But I want you to see the defining thing for me when I look at the life of John Mark is that his whole family is in for the mission Uncle sells his land. Mom gives her house. John Mark gives his whole life uh, to to be a pioneer for Jesus Christ. And so I would just say, you can do the same thing. There's no reason to read about it and say, well, that's cool. No, you can do the same thing for your own children. Give your family a heritage of being a part of the church and a part of the mission of the church. Let your kids grow up in the church seeing mom and dad. Use their home for discipleship. You've ingrained into your children. Home is for mission. Home is for disciples. Home is where Christians meet. Home is where Christians pray. Home isn't a retreat where we run away and lock the world outside. It can be a solace for you at times. But home is your greatest asset. It's your most expensive thing you'll ever buy. Home, listen, dedicate your home to the mission of Christ. And say, God, give us a bigger home. Give us a home where we can entertain people. God, give us a home where people are welcome in our home. All the dirty neighborhood children need to be welcome on your carpet. It'll clean. And when eternity comes and you take assessment of your life, having clean walls and clean floors are not nearly as important as having led your neighbor's children to Jesus Christ. You know? I'll tell you what. I, just, I can remember the days where I'd come home and smell fresh baked cookies. Coming out of open windows and doors in my own house and I was like well praise God I am home from work and I can smell food coming out of the house and I went to the house and there are no cookies But there's a million neighborhood kids in there with chocolate chip smudges on their faces Because susan's made cookies for all the neighborhood kids and they're all there at our house Where we're praying over our food and we're talking about christ and we're being a witness I'm, just saying people you just use your assets for the cause of Christ. And when your kids see how you did it, they'll know how to do it. That's what I'm saying. Don't expect them to model something that you haven't modeled for them. <coughs> Let them see you do it. And, and, and your kids, you, moms and dads, you're doing something for your kids right now. When they see you in these services like you had last week, where they're saying, what are you doing, mom and dad? Why, why, did you, why are you texting to give on your phone? Why are you putting money in the box up there? We're buying a pig, honey. 250 bucks, buy us a nice breeding sow. Well, why aren't we buying a pig, Daddy? Well, because that pig will make much other pigs. And those pigs can be sold. And when we sell the pigs, we get money, and then we can buy shoes for orphans. And when we put food in orphans' bellies and shoes on orphans' feet, listen to me, Cornerstone, you are never closer to the heart of God than when you care for an orphan in this world. You want to get close to Jesus? Do what you're doing right now. You want to see God bless you in your own life? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Jesus said, no one will give a cup of water in my name that they will not receive a reward for what they have done. So I wonder what a pig will get you. The gift that keeps on giving, you know. Listen, praise God that you can be a part of something like that. And your kids, when they are adults... We're going to have memories of mom and dad buying pigs for orphans so that we can baptize kids and cast demons out of teenagers and turn them into disciple makers in a foreign country. They're going to remember this. And they're going to say, this is what my parents did and this is what I need to do. <coughs> Our family is all in for Jesus Christ. And, and I'm proud of you because for weeks now and every year around here, you guys are doing that. Your children need to enter adulthood with memories of family doing ministry. Now, whatever else John Mark goes into adulthood with, he goes into adulthood with that. Imagine him a teenager now. He goes into adulthood. He already knows Simon Peter. He met Jesus Christ. He saw Mary. His own uncle is a missionary. His mom gives their house for ministry. He comes into adulthood with this foundation. So when you talk to him about serving God and on mission... That's all he's ever known. It's his whole life's mission. Now, it's very likely that your kids will come to adulthood and remember your generosity. They'll remember it. They'll remember mom and dad were giving people. Mom and dad were generous people. Listen, when you guys were shopping with your kids to buy toys, to put into shoeboxes, those are the memories. Your kids will remember this. And they'll come to adulthood and say, yeah, I remember when I was a kid. Mom and dad took me to the store and said, pick out toys, we're going to send them up. They'll remember these things and it builds that heart of generosity. Now, it's very likely that John Mark was there at the crucifixion. If I was a teenager, I would remember the crucifixion. You remember what high school was like, right? Junior high, if you were there and saw Jesus crucified, you would remember every detail of the crucifixion. It is certain that Mark encountered the risen Jesus Christ, probably in his own home, when Jesus comes into rooms where Christians are praying and worshiping post-resurrection, it's very likely Mark's house that the risen Christ is coming into. I think you'd have very clear memories of that if you were a teenager. Now, he was too young to be one of the apostles. Now, they're a generation older, so they're, they're more his parents' age. He's just a teenager. So he's too young. He would obviously not be an apostle. He's not there to, for the birth of Christ. Uh, he's too, too, too young for that. Uh, but I'm sure he knew who Mary was. But being a teenager and her being old, oh, I doubt if he had much of a relationship with Mary, the mother of Jesus. He could pick her out of a room and so say, yeah, here's Mary. She's respecting our congregation. Much the way maybe some of our teenagers would know who some of our, maybe our female deacons are in the church. And you guys may know that, Letty, but you may not have a, a, you know, a really close relationship with her. Probably a similar thing with John Mark. Now, uh, I would say it this way. John Mark knew about the birth of Christ but he didn't know it in the same way that Luke did or that Matthew did. Because they had a different relationship with Mary than he did. It was more a little closer to peer age or, you know, I would even say this, I think the real original apostles looked at Mary as a mother. I think they probably called her mom. Uh, A lot of people in this church have called my mother mom. I think they had a relationship with Mary When they hung out and she taught them and she... Now, John Mark's too young. He's like a grandkid in that scenario. Where Matthew and Luke and John... Of course, John was given charge of Mary at the cross. It was like his own mother. John Mark's just a little guy coming up. It would not have been the same relationship. Now, Mark takes a different track in biographizing Jesus because of this and uh peter's the key influencer in his life peter disciples him and uh even mark when mark is writing his own gospel does something humorous i don't know if you've caught on to this or not yet but if you read through the gospel of mark it's very short it's very compact it's very dense it's very full of action listen if you if you're bored reading the bible read mark It moves faster than any of the books. It's just like boom and immediately boom and boom. Switches scenes like a modern movie. And Mark does something so interesting to me. Almost like Alfred Hitchcock would do or Quentin Tarantino would do. You know how they always make a cameo appearance in their own movies? Somewhere in the movie, boop, there goes Hitchcock. Or somewhere in the movie, there's Tarantino showing up. And then he's gone and you won't see him again. Just a passing glimpse in the movie, one-liner or something. Mark does the same thing in his gospel. Mark uh, uh, talks about, let uh, I me mean, read it, verse 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 51. And a young man, it's Mark, wearing nothing but a linen garment, his boxer shorts, was following Jesus when they seized him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Mark fled naked, leaving his garment behind in their hands. In other words, he makes a cameo appearance at the arrest of Jesus. The soldiers come out to take Jesus and, Hey, who's this guy? It's a, it's a, it's a teenager. And they reach for him and all they get is the bed sheet or whatever he's wrapped in. Well, what does that imply? Why would somebody be outside in their boxer shorts or wrapped in a linen garment, a bed sheet, a little linen wrapper? Well, let me ask you, when are you wrapped in a linen wrapper or your boxer shorts? When you're getting in bed, somehow John Mark snuck out of bed. Probably because Roman soldiers were banging on his front door saying, we are here looking for Jesus. And when Mark heard that, and he slipped out the window in his whatever, and he ran to the Garden of Gethsemane because he knew where Jesus was. But by the time he gets there, Judas has taken him down there and he's hiding and he watches it all play out like a teenager sneaking out of his house, hiding in the bushes to remember the scene. And he remembered every detail. And he even makes a Tarantino appearance and says, and at some point they saw me, grabbed, my, grabbed me by my boxers, and I ran right out of them. And I was out of there and went all the way home, streaking through the night back home, and dived back through my window. And, you know, mom's like, are you in there, Mark? Sure. Now, I know nobody in this room's never snuck out at night, and that's probably why I feel the tension in the room right now, because you parents are feeling guilty about sneaking out. Mark was there when the house was shaken by the power of the Holy Spirit in the opening of Acts. The Bible says, tarry until the Holy Spirit comes, and you'll be endued with power from on high. And the room was shaken, and a violent wind blew through the room. At, that was John Mark's house in all likelihood, the place where the Spirit came. Now, let's fast forward because you're beginning to see who this young man was. Now it's 30 years later. He's not a kid anymore. It's around A.D. 64-ish. We don't know exactly, but roughly A.D. 64. Trajan, uh, uh, sorry, the Emperor Nero has now started persecuting uh, the, the, the Jews. Nero has gone completely off his rocker. So Somewhere around that time he sets fire to Rome and goes out on the balcony and fiddles famously while Rome is burning. And as he burns Rome to the ground Nero issues a press release and said it's the Christians who have set fire to Rome. And in his madness he launched, I mean he's mad, totally nuts. In his madness he launches a persecution of the Christians that became a bloodbath. He intended to, again, you keep hearing this out of these crazy emperors. He intended to extinguish Christianity and eradicate every follower of Jesus Christ. And so he tells the army, go round up these people who burned the city, which they didn't, and start executing them and start arresting them. And they were captured and they were uh, seized and their possessions were seized and they were murdered. Now, eventually you know this is what happened to the Apostle Paul and Simon Peter. The Apostle Paul is arrested and brought back to Rome. Simon Peter is then arrested. Paul has already written at least seven of the New Testament books. He'll write 12 or th- maybe 13 of them. Maybe he's written them all. They don't know exactly. He's definitely already written, you know, First and 2 Thessalonians. He's already written First and Second Corinthians. He's already written the book of Philippians. He's already cranked out these New Testament books. And these are books to churches about how to deal with church problems and the ongoing development of the church. At this point, 64 AD, no one has written the story of Jesus. Now, this is what's a little confusing to us because when you open the New Testament, it goes like this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. These four are the biographies of Jesus. They tell the story of Jesus Christ, right? All right, then the book of Acts, which is kind of Luke part 2. Luke tells the story of Jesus. The book of Acts is volume 2. So Luke opens the book of Acts, the former treatise I've already written, containing all the details about Jesus Christ. Now I want to write about what happened as the church was filled with the Spirit and launched. That's the book of Acts. And then the books that follow that, Paul gets saved, and the other books are really about Paul writing To the churches of Europe and helping the churches deal with their problems and deal with their problems and get their theology right and keep correcting problems one constant reformation in the New Testament church which by the way is another one of our modern problems we're no longer reforming the New Testament church it's a constant process We have to constantly come together as a church, study the Scriptures, and ask the Holy Spirit to show us how to deal with the situations we are dealing with that no other culture has ever dealt with. And God will show us how to keep reforming the church as well. So now, no one's written the story of Jesus. Paul's already writing all of these other things about how to keep the church reformed and healthy and on track. But now Nero is... Killing Paul, now he's killing Peter, and you know what? The Holy Spirit begins to move in these other guys, and John Mark begins to say, Listen, before they kill us all, somebody probably ought to write down the story of Jesus, don't you think? Imagine having a Bible that started at 1 Corinthians and not having the story of Jesus. No one had written it yet. And so, John Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, Hey, Someone needs to write this down before we are gone. Now I'm just going to put this out to the congregation. Some of you have a book in you. Get it out before you're gone. Some of you have a book in you. Get it out. Listen, it may not sell but five copies. But God wanted those five people to hear what you had to say. Some of you have journalism degrees. <laughs> Maybe you need to say something with your skills. Maybe there's a book in you that needs to get out. Well, John Mark, led of the Spirit, now says, well, Paul's written this, and Paul's written this, and I'm reading what Paul's saying over here. But they're like, like now at 64, Jesus has been resurrected and back in heaven for 30 years. Somebody needs to write the story of Jesus and talk about who he is and what he did as a man because we're passing the stories verbally in church but nobody has written it into a book and if Nero comes and wipes all of us out this week those books will survive if we can get them out there and John Mark is the first of the gospel writers. Now I know the Bible goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John but in the timeline Mark is the first one to write his gospel and so the others would have had the benefit of reading mark and then saying let's fill in the details mark didn't put in does that make sense so now john can go a different direction which is what pastor jeremy talked about (coughs) because luke now will tell the birth story which we'll talk about next week and matthew will tell about the birth story and the genealogy and mark was the first to come at it and what's curious is mark doesn't have camels in his story Mark doesn't have a manger in his story. Mark doesn't have Bethlehem in his story. He's the very first biographizer. Is that the word you used last week, Jeremy? Methodical biographizing. Nine syllables you pulled on them last week. I was listening, yeah. (laughs) Methodical biographizing. That's fantastic, man. I don't know if I've ever read a theological book. I looked it up after you said it because I didn't think it was a word. All the theology books I've read on the Gospels, I've never read biographies as a word. But that's the right word. You're really a smart guy. Listen, way to go. Take it easy on the rest of us, though, when you use those words. Give us a minute and tell us, maybe you had to put the definition up there. Show us it's a real word so we believe you. That's awesome, man. All right, listen. Now, Mark says, I'm going to just come right at it. Mark assumes you know there was a birth hello, if he's a grown man and they crucified him, he got here, right? And so Mark, and again, I, I'm a, I, don't, I can't prove this, but I'm going to just say what I think, and you just bear with me. I think it's because Mark didn't have the same relationship with Mary that John had, or that Luke had, or that Matthew had, because they're an older generation. In other words, I'm going to say it a different way, and I'll bring it up again maybe in the coming weeks. Do you know how Luke knew? the angel Gabriel appeared in Nazareth? Because Mary told him. Now all you know about Bethlehem, Elizabeth, Zacharias, all you know about wise men and shepherds and stars and angels singing on the countryside hills and praising God, all you know about all of that doesn't come from John, Luke, or Matthew. It comes from Mary, the mother of Jesus she's the only one who was there they weren't there John Luke wasn't there okay Mary you got this come on girl no Mary and Joseph were there Joseph's in heaven already it was Mary who gave all the details in the interviews to those people who knew how to write the opening of their biography since Mark didn't have the relationship I assume that Mark skips that point and says let me tell you what I saw I was just a kid, but here's what I saw when the ministry started. And what Mark talks about is Mark records more miracles than any other gospel. So when you read the book of Mark, that's why I say read it. If you're an action-adventure reader, it'll go much easier for you than the other writings will. Because Mark's going to say, and then this happened, and then this happened. Scene change, scene change. Here's Here's what he did, here's what he did, here's what he did. Mark is very concerned with what Jesus did. Now I want to say that to you a couple of times this morning before we close because I think God's still concerned with what you're doing. And the world is concerned with what you did and how you're doing it. And Mark wants to say, look at Jesus. Jesus was a servant. Jesus was a servant. Mark's very careful to say to you these words. The disciples are baiting who's going to be great in the kingdom of God. Here's what Mark records. Not so with you, Jesus said. Instead, who wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever should be first among you will be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man, Jesus, did not come to be served. But He came to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. What Mark wants you to know is that the the, the cradle and the cross are connected. They are inseparable. And Jesus coming into this world is not so much about the manger as it is, for Mark at least, what he did as a man. His actions are what defined him. In Mark, of course, there was a birth. But look at what Jesus did did he became flesh as john said and he lived among us both to save us and to redeem us but to redeem all of creation as well and mark again in my gut i can't prove it because the dates could move a year in any direction mark's written very close to the book of philippians i kind of think that paul got philippians out before mark got mark out and that Mark has now read Paul's writing of Philippians. And Paul is talking in Philippians about the Jesus that Paul knows. And Mark now is reading that and saying somebody knows, needs to tell the story of Jesus, the biography of Jesus. And Mark now begins to draw on Paul. What did Paul say about this man, Jesus? Very careful to note his servant's attitude. Philippians 2.3, watch this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. This is such a hard thing to teach in America right now where the selfie is the highest standard of photography. Listen, the Bible says, (coughs) Jesus says, Paul says, value others above yourself. Do nothing out of selfishness. Do nothing out of vanity, vain glory. Do not be a self-promoter. Instead, serve others. Humility, servant's attitude. Why? This is who Jesus is. This is what He modeled. He had no ambition. He had no arrogance. He simply put Himself before others. And what He did His whole life, His whole mission was for others. Listen, in Mark chapter 1, here's what you see. Jesus heals a man with an unclean spirit. He heals Simon Peter's mother, uh, mother-in-law mother who's sick. He heals an entire village full of sick people he cleanses a leper that's just chapter one of mark right there so when i say it moves like this and he's saying watch him do it watch what jesus does watch what jesus does mark is trying to densely pack together an understanding see who this man was it's all about others it's all about helping it's all about serving it's all about lifting other people and i think mark has read paul because you, you can just see some thread here listen again what paul said philippians 2 4 not looking on your own interests christians are not to look on their own interests but each of you on the interests of others a servant gives up the pursuit of their own interests jesus came in the form of a servant he gave up the pursuit of his own interests so when you say well what hobbies did jesus have yeah it's not really like that you say, well, what did Jesus collect? Beanie babies, guns, crystal, china. I mean, what, what did he collect? He didn't collect anything. He collected souls. He collected relationships. He collected uh, uh, people. <laughs> uh, that, it was all about others. His whole life was others. A servant naturally gives up pursuit of their own interests. Now, this is hard. You've heard me talk about this and... I need to talk about it some more because I I need to talk about it for my own sake. I am not naturally interested in what doesn't interest me. I am not naturally interested in what you're interested in. A lot of you are interested in things that I don't... I'm not interested in. Okay? Now, I want to be careful now. But since we have been called to be like Jesus... And since I have been called to have the same attitude of Jesus, I am called to be interested in what you're interested in. My whole life has been learning to be interested in what you're interested in so that I can have a relationship with you, so that I can bring you into a relationship with the Father. Does that make sense? And I know one of the things that each of you combat every day of your life is you're interested in what you're interested in. But you're not interested in what your coworkers are interested in. Some of you are not even interested in what your teenagers are interested in. That's why you don't have a relationship with them. Some of you are not interested in what your husband or wife is interested in. That's why you have a failing relationship with them. Some of you young people are not interested in what your grandparents are interested in. Listen, they just want to watch Lubies and Matlock, okay? Now listen. If you want a relationship with them, take them to Luby's. You say, I hate it. This is my point. Listen, do you think the king of kings, do you think it was a little beneath him to be interested in futile and silly things that people were interested in? Sure it was. But he humbled himself. And he became interested in your nonsense because he loved you. And he wanted a relationship with you. Therefore, he lets you drone on every week about silly things in your prayer life that are nonsense. Now, looking back, have you prayed for some pretty stupid stuff? Yeah, you have. Our goldfish is floating upside down, God, and we just pray that you would... God's just like, for the love of Pete. There's demon-possessed teenagers who need to know Jesus. You're praying for your goldfish. And we're just going to take him to the vet and spend $5,000 and have a new air bladder put inside of him so he can float upright. God, we just know if this is your will. There are people going to hell, $5,000 to lead a village to Christ, and we're going to rescue Flipper here. I'm, and God's just like, okay, okay, bear with them, love them, be patient with them. Now, can you imagine some of what goes on? And all I want to say is to be like Christ is to learn to be interested in what others are interested in. If you don't get anything else this morning, here's something you can do this week. Would you just listen to what your coworker's is talking about and try to be interested? You say, but I'm not. Jesus would ask you to be. Because your coworker needs Jesus and you're the key. You have Holy Spirit. You are the touch of God that they need. You are the point of contact with Almighty God. You have the gospel. You know how to share the gospel. You are the answer for that person. You say, well, I'm struggling in my walk with my wife. Well, open your ears and find out what she's interested in and go do it. You say, but I don't want to do it. Well, do you want a wife? If you want a wife, go do it. You say, but my kids and our relationship is because you're not interested in what they're interested in. Well, all they want to do is play video games. Well, maybe you ought to learn how to play Maybe i will learn how to play. Yeah, but they're not interested in the stuff I'm interested in. Who's the parent? Who's the adult in the room? Who's the mature one? I can't tell you how many times parents have told me stuff like that. Yeah, but they're just not interested in football and hunting and skinning things alive and just the, the manly stuff I'm interested in. Oh, they're interested in, you know, playing this video game. Well, listen, maybe you could get them to the woods if they thought you loved them. Love them. Be interested in them. Learn about people. Care about people. Jesus had that servant's attitude. Let me fast forward very quick here. And let me just say to you secondly this morning, and my point number two, mission gives meaning to life. If I were to ask you this morning, what is your life's mission? What answer could you come up with? What is your life's mission When Mark talks about Jesus 40 times, he uses words like this. Straightway, quickly, immediately. And then immediately Jesus went. And then straightway he went. And then quickly he went. And now he did this. And when you read Mark, you're just like, this dude never sleeps. I mean, Jesus is like this. You know what Mark's trying to drive home to you? He's focused on a mission. He was a man on a mission. What is your life's mission? Surely all of us this morning can see that if we have no answer other than consuming My life's mission is to get get all the Black Friday stuff before it's gone My life's mission is to you know get the toilet paper before it's gone My life's mission is to my life's mission is to get get consume consume bigger better quicker (coughs) We're professional consumers that's not a mission What's your life mission Listen, and Jesus said, if you're on my mission, I'll take care of all these other things. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Listen, Jesus is going to make sure you've got toilet paper. Jesus is going to make sure you've got food. If you're focused on putting his mission first. I think one of the most important things that you could do as we enter this season right now is to be thinking about, okay, what is my mission? What is God calling me to do in this Christmas season that I'm in? And it is that mission that gives meaning to your life. It's that mission that gave meaning to his manger. As I travel the world, and, and you've had this experience too, go into the great cathedrals of Europe and you'll see, babe, Babe in Mary's arms, babe in Mary's arms, babe in Mary's arms, babe in Mary's arms, everywhere in the museums, everywhere in the churches. And I'm totally good with that. We need to talk about that. It's an important part of the story. But as I see that take the prominent place in the artwork of the church, I'm wondering if somewhere we've not missed the point. Jesus isn't a babe in mother's arms right now. The manger was just the means by which he got here to be a man, so that he could do the mission that God had sent him to the world to do. The manger isn't the, the sacred part. The, the babe is not the, the focus of the attention. Listen, the crucified and risen Savior is the focus of the story. This is what everything was pointing to. He had a mission to change the world, and he changed it. Now, I just say this in my last thought. When you look at Christ's example, and you think, well, what was Christ's example? His success was according to the Father's will. In other words, Jesus is always saying things like this, I do always those things which please the Father. Uh, Jesus would say things like this, I've not come to please myself, I've come to do the will of Him that sent me. And I want us to adopt a similar mindset that yes, you're in control of making decisions and yes, this is the land of the free and yes, pursue your dream but you should pursue your dream in accordance with what God is leading you to do with your life's mission. In other words, if you can find out what God wants you to do, you'll be happy. If you can't find out what God wants you to do, you're never going to be happy. You say, well, if we get a bigger house and more cars and we get... You're never going to be happy pursuing that American dream material thing unless you understand the mission of God for your life. And listen, then you can really many times enjoy both, but you're going to have to be on His mission. And and as uh, anyone who's a servant... You have to report to your master. Uh, there's a very interesting wording that happens in the Bible. Let me tell you a quick story as I close. In the Old Testament system, when you came to offer sacrifices and you went down to the temple or the tabernacle and those priests were there serving. And here I come with my sheep because, of course, I'm me. And, you know, I, I, I keep sinning and I have to go offer a sacrifice, you know, to the Lord here in the temple they would take my sacrifice, and, and there you, know, you, you would kill it, and they would burn it, and they would do all that priestly stuff in there. <clears throat> that never ended. That happened continually. As a matter of fact, when you look in the, any model you ever see of the temple or tabernacle, or you do any reading in the Old Testament, you'll notice there's no chairs. There's no couches. There's an altar. There's a candlestick. There's, but isn't it curious? There's nothing to sit on anywhere. There's not a bench, there's not a stool, there's not a chair, there's not a couch. And, and it was because they worked in shifts when the priests were at, on the clock, if you would. And when they're on the clock, they're never allowed to sit down. <laughs> Kill Jason. sacrifice. Jason, let's get that up on the altar, okay? God's overlooked your sins for you. Be gone, man. All right, well, Peter's get in here, man. Weren't you here like five minutes ago? Wow, you must be a big sinner. Okay, boom, and they're offering your sacrifice. Get out of here. We got it, man. Okay, here comes Yancy, you know. Oh, here comes Harold again. For the love of Pete. This dude like lives down here. <laughs> offering sacrifice all the time for his mis- misdeeds. Yep. And and so that was their and they never sat down while they're on their shift. And it was a reason for that, because they were sending the message to the world from God that this is never done until it's done. And it's never done. With these animal sacrifices. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. The blood of bulls and goats you would not. But a body you have prepared for me. Uh, In the volume of the record is written. Lord I come to do your will. And so when the priests are offering. They never sit down. They never sit down. And then as you start reading about Jesus. Here's what it says. Day after day the priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again he offers the same sacrifices. Which can never take away sins. But when this priest Jesus had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. He sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God. Now, if Paul wrote that or whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, whenever they wrote that, they were making a very clear statement. The priest could never sit because the work was never done until it was done. And your sins are never going to be paid for until the Son of God comes and hangs on that cross and dies a substitutionary death for the sins of the whole world. And then whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And it's all through the death. The burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the writer of Hebrews, knowing that story, later sat down and wrote these words. And when Jesus had offered himself and had ascended to heaven, he sat down on the right hand of the Father. Listen, the greatest commentary Jesus ever gave on his life mission were these words Father, it's finished! It's done. The priest could never say it's finished. All they could say is, see you tomorrow. Jesus said, Done. You say why? Because he had a mission. He was sent from God to be a servant to humanity and die a substitutionary death for you and for I. And when he was done, he sat down on the right hand of the Father. Let me ask you this question in closing. If people looked only at your actions. This week and maybe over these last few weeks. If people looked only at your actions, what would you be known for? I mean, if people just didn't ever hear the thing you said. Just said, I see them, I see them, I see them. See them at work, see them at school, see them in the community. What would you be known for? Listen, as the Holy Spirit is speaking to your hearts this morning about this man, Jesus who came to this earth and was on a mission and he did this healing and he did that miracle and he did this miracle and he did this miracle all to ultimately go to the cross and die for your sins to be your sacrifice. As you hear all of this and you're thinking about the life you live, what step of obedience is Holy Spirit speaking to you about? I think I've got four or five names on the board upstairs that are getting ready for baptism right now. Is Holy Spirit saying you need to add your name to the list? Have you committed to the church body? Can we add your name to the list of people who need to be in Discover Cornerstone taking the next steps of membership? Listen, maybe you're the person that sits back and watches everybody else give. And you're like, well, as long as they're doing it, you know, these people are probably really rich and they don't know that things are a little tight at our place. Listen, they're tied at everybody's place. They're tied at everybody's place. Just some people have made a real priority of putting God first on the list. Listen, as you see other people praying and other people involved, other people engaging, and you're sitting back in maybe this comfortable shadow spot just watching Christianity happen, you're a part of it but not engaged. What's the Holy Spirit asking you to do? I'll tell you this, he'll never ask you to do anything that he won't equip you to do it. Amen. If he ever says to you, talk to this person, you won't have to worry for the words. He'll give you the words and the words will be fine. It may not be a nine-syllable theological word. It doesn't need to be. More than anything, it probably needs to be, hey, I just want you to know somebody loves you. That, that's a great starting point. Listen, I care for you. Can I pray for you? Hey, it looks like you're hurting. Could I just come alongside you and pray for you right now? Could I be a friend to you at this Christmas season? I want to remind this church family, as joyous as this season is for you who know Jesus Christ, this is like the number one time of depression and mental health issue for people who have broken families and fractured families. This season is a big stress for some people, big trigger month. Listen, this is a great time. And you may be saying right now, yeah, it is for me. Okay, even if it's your trigger month, how about you ministering to somebody else? It's a great way not to focus on your trigger. Minister to someone. You say, well, my family's a disaster. Listen, then find a family here and bring them into your home for Christmas and tell your family to go fight by themselves. I I mean, you've got options. You've got lots of options. I just want to say to you, in this Christmas season... What can you do to be like Jesus Christ? The Holy Spirit saying something to you. What can I do to be like him? Remember this. A servant is not defined by pedigree. A servant is not defined by family. That's why Mark gives you no genealogy. Mark's audience is Gentile. And they don't care about genealogies and Old Testament laws. And, and, and that's us. We, we, we just want to know who he was and what he did. And that's why Mark is compelling you. Be Like Jesus he was known for what he did Known for what he did our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed I want to ask you right now just to make some decision about what Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart about You may be here as a young person this morning and maybe this first time you've ever heard that mark was kind of a teenager in the church and Listen, he was the first gospel writer So teenager, I want to say lead out of your youth. Maybe God's calling you to be a greater part of leadership in our own youth department, our own church here. Listen, I think one of the greatest decisions that could happen is for you to be a a teen leader. And just say, you know, when this Christmas break comes, I, I just want to kind of rededicate my life to Christ. Maybe God really spoke to you a moment ago when I talked about being interested in others interested in your children interested in your spouse and i know it's hard to be interested in what doesn't interest you but god's calling you to do it just crucify your own interest for for an hour this week and be interested in what interests somebody else it shows love it shows christ it shows compassion jesus was generous Maybe you've really been struggling with giving of your wealth and your possessions to the common ministry we have here. I want to ask you to make a decision about that today and say, God, if you'll keep blessing, I'm going to give. I'm going to be a giver. I'm going to be a generous person. I want to be that person. God, I struggle being a giver, but I want to be a generous person. God, help me in my heart to be that generous person I need to be father there's many decisions that are happening in hearts right now, Holy Spirit, we yield to you. Whatever decision you impress upon us, our answer needs to be yes right now. God, if there's any here that 's never received you as savior, stir their hearts, convict of sin, stir them for their need for salvation, God open. The door for conversations this week. God, as we go to our homes now, Lord, we pray for your blessings on our lives. Protect us, guide us, comfort us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand together. Jeremy started a new benediction for us last week. <coughs> These are ancient, ancient, ancient words from the Old Testament. Moses said, may the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and may he be gracious to you. May the Lord look on you with favor and may he give you peace. God bless you. We'll see you next Sunday.